episode 196, Advocating for Diabetes Advocacy. Today, I speak with Kelly Close, who is the founder of the Diatribe Foundation and DQNA. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Kelly Close is the founder of the Diatribe Foundation, DQ&A, as well as actually Close Concerns. Today, we talk about how healthcare professionals and healthcare organizations can help diabetes patients feel empowered and do well. Diatribe started out as a newsletter, but today it is much more than that. It's a place where those with diabetes and their loved ones can go for information and peer support. It's also a strong advocacy group. Diatribe's mission is to work to advocate for action and improve the lives of people with diabetes and pre-diabetes. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Kelly. It's such a pleasure to be here. So why don't we begin at the beginning? Why did you start Diatribe? At the time, I had already had diabetes 15, gosh, or maybe even it was 20 years um, by then. And I felt that there was a lot of information and insights out there that I wanted to know about as a patient. And so I started Diatribe because I wanted to read Diatribe. And um, (laughs) I was lucky at the time that I was getting to meet a lot of researchers and doctors and policymakers. And I wanted to share, be able to share the information. And so that is how Diatribe.org began. And we were very lucky that we got a grant from the Helmsley Charter trust to help us get an editor and to help us, you know, again, translate all of the information from these scientific and regulatory and advocacy meetings that we were going to as a small team that was very focused on making the world smarter about diabetes. So it sounds like the ambition is to make sure that patients are empowered to make decisions and manage their disease. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really big part of it. And I think also so that patients also understand what some of the constraints are in the system so that we can do a better job of advocating for ourselves and having collective impact. And I think that it is really important for patients to be able to understand what's happening on the scientific side that is exciting, that can translate into all of us, you know, doing better on diabetes management. And obviously... Oh, that's that's my continuous monitor. So that, and that's one of the things actually when, when I was starting that I wanted to know more about and I wanted to share more information about because that's a great example of we can all take our blood glucose by, you know, with finger sticks, you know, four times a day if we're lucky enough to be able to afford that many strips or we can also advocate to be able to use better science and to be able to really encourage innovation. And that is what has happened over the last couple of decades. And it is night and day today versus 20 years ago how we can manage our diabetes. There have also been a lot of transformations in terms of things like psychology and mindset and understanding as patients. I've learned so much from patients what we can all do, how much we can benefit from things like peer support, you know, how we can benefit from making sure that we're smart about how much sleep we're getting, some things like that that my colleague Adam Brown has written about in his book, Bright Spots and Landmines, and just patients working together and banding together and being able to be smarter together has been really thrilling. 
Yeah, and I think there's a lot of research and just examples that support that, just the power of numbers to make change and draw attention to areas that people are affected by in terms of policymakers and other decision makers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we have been really moved by watching other advocacy groups, I mean, inside and outside of diabetes, you know, and inside diabetes, seeing what the JDRF, um, who's completely committed to changing things for people with type 1, seeing what they have been able to do, you know, going back to FDA, and they changed, for example, the whole way that the regulatory system perceives and analyzes data for the artificial pancreas as one example. There are other examples like beyond A1C where we and other advocacy groups have worked together to be able to show that it A1C is a measure and it's a valuable measure. And as technology advances, there are also other ways of measuring additional things that show how well we're doing as patients. So back in the day, people used to care almost only, and I'm saying payers here in particular, cared about direct costs. And direct costs are really important related to diabetes, but indirect costs are important as well. So measuring things like productivity or measuring things like emotional well-being, obviously, all of that is tied to how well we are doing, you know, as an ecosystem. And so I think that we've been able to really band together and we, we would like to do even more of that in the future. What are some of the constraints that you are recognizing right now relative to diabetes patients getting the care that is really necessary in order to produce the outcomes that you're looking for? We divide at the Diatribe Foundation the barriers into four different areas. So one of them is just under systems. You know, that could be everything from the different kinds of problems across reimbursement. That could be things like, what are medical students learning? We heard recently that at one of the very top medical schools, they are still getting only one half day of training for diabetes and one half day for nutrition. That's a problem. When we think about other sorts of problems and other barriers, the second bucket we would point to would be just things like social norms. Social norms are not really set up so that everyone can eat as healthily as possible or exercise as much as possible. Maybe just the way that the cities that we live in are set up. There's obviously too much stigma. So the public attitudes toward diabetes are not the healthiest. And then the third bucket, I guess, that we would set up is just behavior design and behavior change. We have learned so much about this from Dennis Boyle, who's one of our board members at the Diatribe Foundation, all of the work that they're doing at IDEO on this front to make better environments for people is incredible. But BJ Fogg is another big influencer of ours out of Stanford University and has taught a lot about behavior change and understanding what we would need to do as patients and to have environments that are better set up for us. And the last thing that we would point to would be prevention. There's not necessarily nearly as much investment as we would like to see across prevention. That's prevention of long-term complications. That's prevention of diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. It's been really exciting to see the investments that Helmsy Charitable Trust has put into prevention of type 1. And JDRF is working with them on that. But prevention of type 2, we are not investing nearly enough as an ecosystem on that. You can't prevent an autoimmune disease like type 1, but you absolutely can prevent prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in many circumstances. 
we're thinking about this from the standpoint of a healthcare organization, you know, a physician, nurse, someone who is seeing diabetes patients. So you've mentioned these four categories of, of constraints. Yeah. How can I attempt to overcome them? Is there a way that a healthcare organizational leader can help their patients and overcome some of these constraints and challenges? Absolutely. Gosh, I mean, where do we start? Every single person with type 1 diabetes and every single person that is taking insulin or is on sulfonylurea, that's a kind of oral medicine for type 2, should have access to CGM because you can't know where you want to go with your diabetes management till you know where you are. And we think that CGM is so important to be able to understand how is food affecting me? How is exercise or the lack of exercise affecting me? How is stress affecting me? And so forth. So, for sure, healthcare providers can advocate for patients to be able to have access. And, you know, diabetes advocates have made so many strides in getting access for CGM from even from Medicare today. You know, for anyone who's on insulin, again, it needs to be a broader group of people that have access to that. But that's one thing. But the second thing is for healthcare providers really to be able to help patients get access to the right medicines and then to the right environments in which to take the medicines. And so one thing is there are so many many healthcare providers that are working so hard under big constraints themselves. And so for them to also advocate for themselves to have more time to spend with patients and so forth. And th those are systems level problems that certainly can't be changed in a day, but to have more time so that they can actually say, how are you? to the patient, look them in the eye and have time to sit and, you know, actually listen to them and help brainstorm with them and so forth. I think also for us all to be advocating very actively to have access to the right environments and to make sure that there is not discrimination and to make sure that we're not being bystanders. You know, if someone is seeing any sort of discrimination, it's not just if we're discriminating against, you know, people with diabetes, but to make sure that we are seeing much, much, much less of that in the system and really actively promoting support of people with any kind of chronic disease. Let's go back and take those one at a time because they're very intriguing and I want to make sure that we dig in a little bit. The first item that you mentioned is making sure that patients feel supported as possible. And you had brought up the CGM and ensuring that patients get the continuous glucose monitoring. I would think, though, that if you're a patient and it's, you know, day one with the glucose monitor, yeah. you know, that there's going to be education that's necessary. You have to facilitate shared decision making. Yes, you know what totally I mean? Right. Like, what's the package of services that if I'm a healthcare organization, I should be thinking about creating a program? Like, how does a healthcare organization even begin to think about this? Because in a traditional FFS, you know, fee for service model, you know, yeah. the patient comes in, whoop, whoop, whoop. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's not that sort of continuous care relationship. Yeah. And the feedback loops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're totally right. First of all, just being able to create an environment where patients understand that they can be incredibly successful. And I would say, you know, there are business leaders all over the place. There are political leaders, celebrities, et cetera, who have diabetes and who may not be making that very visible because there's still a lot of, you know, like I said, stigma associated with that. But um, so for the healthcare provider who is the first person who will see patients with diabetes when they're diagnosed, 
you know, if they can't help them prevent it, the next best thing is to really help them understand that they can manage it as well as possible. And again, this is for people with type one and type two. Sometimes in type two, I think we see much more discrimination because people are associating it with lifestyle and lifestyle is part of it. Genetics are a huge part, however, of being diagnosed with type two diabetes. And so making really sure that there is no bias and that we are being as supportive of patients as possible, really asking them about their home life and if they can go out of their way to get the best food possible and to get time to exercise and to get time to sleep and to have time to support patients so that their mindset is as positive as possible. And again, here I'm talking about these are exactly the things that my colleague Adam has written about in his book, Bright Spots and Landmines. And this is a book that he wrote because he wished he would have been handed this book when he was diagnosed with diabetes. That's at diatribe.org slash bright spots, which of course I can't resist. Um, I can't resist <laughs> advertising that a little bit because your question is so spot on. You know, what do we need to have in this system for patients from the very beginning? And so I do think that back in the day, in the early days, CGM was really complicated to use and it has become so much easier, every piece of it. And so making sure that doctors and nurses know that and are getting access to patients for it, even if they are only getting access, you know, you can use it intermittently, meaning, you know, you can use it for a couple of weeks and then you can see so much. And then taking that information and closing the loop and saying, what's not going well here and what's changeable. You know, we talk a lot about solvable problems in diabetes and the, on the therapy side, we certainly know that many of the problems are related to reimbursement of therapy and that does need to be much, much better. I don't feel like we actually talk enough about, you know, from a systems perspective, how much we are spending on things like dialysis and things like heart attacks and strokes and all of these system problems that are absolutely preventable. And that goes back to the very first minute and what you said, like, what do they need to do? So I think helping patients understand what's changeable, what's possible through continuous monitoring and then getting the right medicines. So it is shameful. I almost said criminal. It's not quite criminal, I guess. I, although, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's debatable. But you know, the number of patients who go on medicines that are not the optimal medicines for them, medicines that make them gain weight, medicines that give them hypoglycemia, medicines that are associated with congestive heart failure or beta cell burnout, et cetera, just because they're cheap, you get what you pay for. And we think that there have been so many transformative medicines that have been researched and developed and now are available that do things like help prevent cardiac disease, help prevent renal disease. And just the awareness and education about those is not nearly enough. Just the same as, you know, awareness and education about things like the built environment. How easy is it to exercise? Sometimes people don't know who are at very low incomes, what they might be able to qualify for in terms of healthier foods, etc. And so the, the physician or the, you know, broader, maybe it's a broader healthcare system where it's a, an educator, but really being able to show people what they can do across the board. All of this toward the end that, that the patient's emotional well-being is as high as possible. 
it's also really important to support the community organizations that are making changes for patients. You know, we've written about a lot of them in a recent anthology of Bright Spots is what we call it. Um, this was the idea of Dr. James Gavin, who is just an absolute legend um, in Atlanta for diabetes management and, and being so inspiring to patients and physicians and to nurse educators. And until we are doing much more to create healthy communities and supporting communities, we will not be successful. And this all probably sounds like a lot to be asking of healthcare providers, but it's like healthcare providers can't do it on their own. They really do need to uh, make sure that they're working at a community level. And there are so many amazing examples of great things going on at community levels. That's exciting. While you have been talking, I have been jotting down a checklist of things which could comprise a diatribe approved yeah. program. So this is what I have so far. Okay. Check my math here. The first thing is you absolutely have to have some education materials. Perhaps someone wants to go to diatribe.org slash brightspots. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yes. That's an amazing place to start. <laughs> Collect all these pieces of content because let's not forget much research has shown that patients only remember 15% of what is told yes, to them in right. the office. So they need something to take yeah. them to refer to. Then there's a, another checkbox I have here because obviously all of the things that we've been talking about relative to ensuring that the clinicians and individual providers who are seeing these patients, they need to know a lot of stuff, you know, like yes. not only yes. the clinical, but then also behavioral science, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's a whole field of study. And if you're trying to produce outcomes, exactly like you said, if a patient doesn't understand exactly what you said or is not motivated to do so, then they're not going to. And it doesn't matter how great you are of a clinician, it's just not going to do anything. Making sure that clinicians are trained in behavioral science, that they're trained in obviously the clinical stuff, but then also yeah. they know all about the stigmatizing language. Absolutely. I mean, even for example, like using terms like obesity, that's not as good as being able to talk about healthy weight. Using terms like is the patient compliant as opposed to how engaged are patients and how engaged are healthcare providers, you know, some of that is really valuable. I, I also definitely think we need to recognize as patients, wow, it's pretty hard position for many physicians and nurses, and they don't themselves have nearly enough resources. So we totally respect that. But assuming goodwill on both parts is, you know, we think really, really important and can be really instrumental. So moving on to my list, I also have making sure that there's an educator, you know, a diabetes educator yes, and or absolutely. as well as perhaps a social worker or, you know, somebody yes. who understands what resources are available. And then yes. lastly, I have checking around to make sure that if there are community organizations or ways that the, for example, maybe a year or so ago on the podcast, I interviewed someone from the effort. I think it actually might be called Healthy Communities, but it's something that yes. Esther Dyson is working on. Yes. And she is so inspiring. She is. But, you know, basically the same point. There's no sidewalks that no one can walk. So if you tell <laughs> someone to go for a yeah. walk, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, talk about engagement and what like Fitbit has been able to do. That's an example of an organization that they themselves have amazing communities of people. Like there's an incredibly inspiring type two community, people who are sharing all of their information about Fitbit and so forth. And this is much easier than it used to be. You know, I think that's been really exciting for patients to be able to measure and monitor their success. I'm feeling like there's almost a dichotomy of like, you've got the really engaged patients who are going to actually read that education and get the Fitbit and do all these things. And then you've got the other patients that just kind of aren't. 
So I totally know where you're coming from. I mean, I think one thing that is really good to recognize is just the incredible heterogeneity of the community of, you know, people with diabetes. And for sure, like if you have three jobs, if you have four kids to take care of, you know, if you have, there are many constraints in your life. I mean, my husband and I have three kids and I can definitely say that it's harder and it's also easier for me sometimes to turn my focus to the kids when I could be focusing on my own well-being. I think motivation is a really, it's art and it's science. And so to recognize that each of us are individuals and, you know, there are cohorts of us. And for some of us, it's easier to be engaged because we have more family support. Some of us, you know, some patients obviously have less patient support. So I think taking time to sort of understand people's situation is really important. And also, again, I mean, I just keep coming back to this piece on emotional well-being. I mean, we had, you know, we the former Surgeon General would Vivek Murthy would talk about this all the time, emotional well-being and the importance of getting out in the community and and all of that. I am so excited to see so many payers making it very possible for people to get Fitbits. Thinking about Fitbit, they recently acquired a company called Twine Health. They have a coaching platform. I think today, I mean, looking at companies like Livongo, you know, looking at companies like one drop. There's a bunch of different ways today to be able to get more feedback about your health. And so even though it is always easier and we always, you know, of course, see more the most engaged patients in arenas where there are the most resources. But I do think payers are really starting to understand how incredibly important this is. And you know, when we talk about like engagement and what is what is prompting that's not just the therapy, but guess what? If you're on therapy that is not causing you to gain weight, if you're on therapy that is not causing hypoglycemia, and if it is not causing a lack of stability in your life, and if you're actually getting access to therapy that is really protective, that is like thing one. So again, like going back to the checklist, every single patient should be getting the kinds of tools to manage their disease that they need at that stage and recognizing that diabetes is progressive. And so, you know, not wasting time on, all right, you know, try this sulfonylurea for three months and then come back. And, you know, the patient may not be able to come back until nine months later and and all of that. We're really impressed with what Kaiser is doing. Apparently, half of their appointments now are on telehealth. And I can just say, I mean, being able to actually look at a healthcare provider on a smartphone and being able to drop that friction that sometimes comes from, okay, I have to get across town on the 22 bus and, you know, get to them and, oh, no, I'm late, all of that. Adam talks all the time about how to reduce friction in diabetes management. And I think this is a really cool way to think about it. He also talks a lot about how sometimes it's really hard when the benefits are in the long term. It's really hard to change short-term behavior. So let's make the short-term behavior easier. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And I neglected to add to the end of the the checklist, the points that you just made, which are the ensuring that there is a feedback loop so yeah. that patients can understand what they're doing or, or not doing, which may be affecting their numbers. And then the medication management, which in a lot of ways, exactly like you just said, uh, you know, I think I saw something recently about these staggeringly few patients 
who know their diabetes is actually out of control because they're supposed to come back. If they get an out of control reading, you know, their medication gets changed and then they're supposed to come back in three months to get checked again. Like, obviously, that would make sense. Right. And then so few, probably for all the reasons that you just stated, like it's a big hassle. (laughs) Don't come back. And everybody loses. Yeah, exactly. And I so appreciate it. I mean, you're just approach to to talking about diabetes and really understanding things from the patient side is amazing. And this is really rare and special. Um, So thank you. Well, thank you for talking about it. I do want to get back to some of the technologies. You had mentioned Livongo, you'd mentioned OneDrop, and then also obviously Fitbit. How do you see these things actually improving outcomes? And do you see payers paying for them? Yeah. So these are, yeah. Thank you so much for raising those questions. These are so important. So, you know, I would say, I think where we're going to be with it, with some of these technologies and services, you know, is in five years from now, we'll be nine day versus today because we will have seen more of the changes in outcomes. You know, the one that we see a lot of focus on absolutely is, you know, related to severe hypoglycemia. There were about $7 billion worth of claims for severe hypoglycemia. Um, I think this is 2016 day. That should be zero. You know, there should be no one that has to go to the hospital or into an ambulance to address severe hypoglycemia. And so I do think the payers are becoming more focused on that. And that's one reason why, along with a lot of the strides from advocates, I think that's a big reason why Medicare is paying for CGM. I think we are still nowhere near the point where we need to be. Like, you need to have CGM so that you can send that data back and forth, you know, the coaching programs and so forth. Some of them are are just in the very early days. Many of them, they may not have CGM associated with them, but they have maybe free strips so that you're not constrained. I think back in the day, you know, strips were a lot more expensive and we really limited the number that we could use when in fact getting patients to know their numbers and know where they are. We shouldn't have to limit that at all. I think that our payers funding all of this, you know, it's we're certainly not where we would like to see payers across the board. But there are some really innovative payers who are funding um, really interesting trials like United Healthcare is a really interesting one that is doing a lot with type 2 diabetes and CGM. And we're excited to see some of these results come out. I think there are a lot of pilot programs. You know, Esther Dyson talks about pilotitis and, you know, sometimes there are too many of those. But I think that it's really important that we're looking and seeing and testing these things and and then, you know, getting a feedback loop and noticing and then making sure that the payers are finding out about it. I do think that there is way too much pressure on payers to create amazing results on a quarterly basis. And prevention is hard to fund because sometimes what we are trying to prevent is complications that are so long-term that it takes a little while to see where we're, you know, really making a dent. But again, I think funding these, you know, technologies and services that are going to increase engagement and will increase sort of short and longer-term success in diabetes is what we want to see. And we are in a world today, you know, the expenses associated with diabetes globally are $1.3 trillion trillion dollars a year. That is crazy. And we are not even doing well. And it's not like CRISPR or it's not like immuno-oncology or it's not like a bunch of different areas where there is amazing progress going on, hepatitis C, etc. Like there is not nearly the funding that we would like to see of the transformative medicines and, and so forth. And there is not nearly enough funding of amazing programs that are prompting more engagement. I mean, things like children with diabetes is, is an amazing one. Like Friends for Life is an incredible summer program that happens occasionally 
camp over kind of a family camp over five days. This is where people get to be together and people get to be in community. We would love to see many more opportunities for people with diabetes to be in the community. And so for the payers to recognize the incredible importance of this is really critical. And we believe that we're making a lot of strides on this front. There are many lessons from the type one community and Aaron Kowalski and what he and Nicole Johnson are making happen at the JDRF to prompt community and to prompt better day-to-day management as we look for you know more successes in the long term. So $1.3 trillion is a whole lot of money. You would think that there would be a lot more action on, yes. on this front. Why not? You know, you hear the criticism a lot across the board that businesses or community groups or even at the um, policy level that we work in silos. And I think this is sometimes this is just an easy criticism. But I also think I think it's true in diabetes. Everyone is sort of working overtime and is so committed. Sometimes it's very hard not to work in silos, partnership and collaboration. That's time consuming, you know, consensus is time consuming. And maybe there's not quite as much of that as we would like to see. For sure, we are hearing much more as we approach the elections. We are hearing much more focus on healthcare, I think, this election than we did the last one. But I think we need to be hearing from political leaders how important this is to them and to their constituents. I think that we need to be seeing in the media more focus on what is possible. I mean, the only good thing about this spending and this all these costs of $1.3 trillion are that a lot could happen to reduce that so that we could invest in better places. Like, you know, we'd all love to see probably, you know, more investment in education. You know, we'd love to see more investment in the environment, etc. So I do think it's a lack of focus from the very highest leadership levels. I don't necessarily think the biggest businesses in the land are necessarily thinking about what the impact is from diabetes on their employees, on their board, on their constituents. Constituencies. I think there are amazing programs like Cities Changing Diabetes that are really cool to see that have just started, you know, in the last several years. So we can see what the impact. Houston is an amazing city with Dr. Faith Foreman working on diabetes kind of night and day there and to really make an, an impact on like community by community, you know, bodega by bodega, block by block. And that is really cool to see, but that is not what is happening in every single, you know, city and every single town and so forth. And it is really what we need to be doing at a community level, this is going to affect how much people are getting cancer. You know, this is going to affect many other health areas that are so impacted. But I would say today it is not a major focus. Yeah. And I think you were referring to the fact that there's a bunch of research that came out that if you have type 2 diabetes, your cancer risk is higher. But this is, and I don't want to get on a soapbox myself, but just... No, get on one. (laughs) The economics of the situation, I I think, are very clear here, at least to me, that the ultimate payers are going to be patients. And I mean that both from a cost perspective, as well as a, you know, quality of life perspective, taxpayers and employers. Those are the three ultimate pairs. Everybody else, honestly, within the system, at least as as it stands in a fee-for-service environment and with the current way that, that yeah. premiums are calculated, stands to actually yeah. gain as prices go up. 
So I, you know, I think you're absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. I, think, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, like nobody's going to make a whole lot of money off of organizing a community gathering. So I, I think. Although, although I guess I would say, you know, what's really cool is that, you know, I think back in the day when I worked on Wall Street, you know, 20 years ago, everything was about shareholder value, you know, for a public company. And it did come down to that. And they had so much influence over every community and so forth. I think today, the really forward thinking companies are really thinking about stakeholder value and they get it. You know, I mean, in places like the cities, many cities are not at full employment, but many are, you know, in San Francisco, Boston, New York, and so forth. And so I think there are, you know, Silicon Valley. And I think many of the big companies are absolutely thinking about things more broadly and how to keep and retain and really engage their employees. And they do care about this. You know, the millennials, Gen Z, I mean, these are the most amazing generations. Like I've never studied or seen or witnessed, you know, such impressive mission-driven generations as much younger generations coming on now. I'm so lucky that I get to work with so many of them here at Close Concerns and the Diatribe Foundation and at DQ&A and to see how much people care. So I do think that there is some change happening there. It's going to be really interesting for all of us to see what is this combination of Amazon and Berkshire and JP Morgan, how are they going to approach, you know, such a massive public health problem as diabetes, for example. And it's great to see them setting up you know, a nonprofit that doesn't need to worry about, you know, resources to the same extent, maybe as many others, and then they can teach all of us. And where can people go to find out more information about what you are up to over there at Diatribe and the foundation? People can go to diatribe.org and they can understand more about the education that we're trying to get across at Diatribe. We're now going out to over 150,000 people every week with our newsletter that's run by Jimin Kwan, who is absolutely phenomenal, as is the whole team. It's a small team, but a mighty team. They can certainly follow us on Facebook. They can find Diatribe on Facebook and also on Twitter, Diatribe News. Also, just trying to understand what we're doing at a foundation level. That's also on our website at diatribe.org slash foundation. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Kelly. Oh, thank you so much, Stacey. You're such a superstar. I so appreciate you showing how much you care about people with diabetes and wanting to change the landscape. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.